From London to Lisbon, from Cape Town to Charleston, we tell the stories of the people that make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experiences. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, and without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal, the show where practice meets personality. I am your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the world of international dispute resolution. Listen, I know you're confused. A second episode of Tales of the Tribunal in one week? What's going on? On your podcast feed, the first episode of Disputes Digest premiered yesterday. Disputes Digest is a spinoff show of TOT that will provide snippets about webinars, events, opportunities, and news from around the international dispute resolution space. Think of it as your five to 10 minute appetizer on Wednesdays before the main show airs on Thursdays. Right now, we plan to continue doing Disputes Digest episodes in between the time of Seasons 2 and Season 3. So, stay tuned to both for all your updates. Speaking of updates, are you subscribed to us on LinkedIn? Have you shared us with a neighbor or a colleague that needs to know about the goings-on in international ADR? If not, fix that. Go ahead. I'll wait. Go ahead and tap that follow button on LinkedIn and send it to a friend. All right, one more announcement before we introduce this week's guest. The start of the VSMOOC 2021 season is just a few weeks away. Hard to believe. For coaches, arbitrators, moodies, and mooding enthusiasts, it's never too early to start making plans for the 2021 pre-mooding season. So make sure you put this one on your calendar. The Asian International Arbitration Center, AIAC, is hosting its annual pre-moot competition from 5th to 7 March 2021. Just like the VIS, it'll be all digital. As a supporting organization, TOT is excited and looking forward to hearing all the fantastic and compelling arguments and seeing new Moody's and arbitrators joining the fray. Who will this season's champion be? You might just find out at the AIAC's virtual pre-moot. For information or to register, email premoot at AIAC Dot world. All right, let's introduce this week's guest. Sophie Knappert is a dual qualified lawyer in Canada and the UK. She sits as arbitrator and has become a leading expert on the field on the fusion of technology and dispute resolution, in particular ODR and blockchain. She has a number of writings and speaking appearances on these topics and was kind enough to join us for not one but two episodes. So get your notepads ready, and I think you will get a lot out of our conversation. So sit back, relax, and maybe pull out your pocket blockchain guide and enjoy my conversation with Sophie Knappert. And we'll see you on the other side of the show. Hello, and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I am your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the world of international law and dispute resolution. With me today, I have a very special guest, Miss Sophie Knapper. Hey, Sophie, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Chris. Thanks for having me. 
Great. And so Sophie is someone whose reputation uh, precedes her, but we will go into the questions that I like to start all of my episodes with. Who are you? Where are you from? What do the people need to know? People need to know that I'm a lawyer. It's something that I usually apologize for, uh, but probably not on this podcast. Um, I am Canadian. I'm originally from Montreal. I am based in London. I have been in uh, in this city for a couple of decades now, um, and I am an arbitrator, and that's pretty much it. Dog that's lover. Pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that's a fair that's a fair place to start. So you've been in London for a while. Before that, where were you before London? I was in Paris for a few years, um, and I I started my career in Montreal. So it was essentially Montreal, London, Paris, London. That's that's roughly okay. what it's been. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. And and so you mentioned that you're both a lawyer and an arbitrator, and we'll talk about both of those things. But as it goes to being a lawyer, did you know that you always wanted to be a lawyer? What what kind of took you down that path? No. Um, I'm the I'm the first um, lawyer in my immediate family. Indeed, I am the first person in my immediate family to have gone to university. Um, I um, did not know what I wanted to do, uh, so I decided. Uh, I was told, rather, <laughs> by my okay, that um, it was perhaps a good way to earn a living and to give it a try, and so I did. I um, applied at McGill Law School. I got in and um, I started studying the law, literally having very little idea um, as to what well, I knew, obviously, what the law was. And I knew what I had. I, I could see on TV what lawyers did in court. But apart from that, you know, very I, I started from a very blank slate. Um, and um, I I stuck it out uh, to my surprise, uh, graduated. Um, McGill had, uh, and I think still does have, a very Socratic method of teaching, um, extremely uh, conceptual, uh, which is uh, ideally suited, I think, to the more mature mind, uh, which was not mine. I was 18 years old when I, I started law school. Um, and so it was a steep learning curve, to say the least, uh, but something that completely ignited my uh, intellect and um, something obviously that I carry, still carry with me. Um, it's, it's just a shame I couldn't do it maybe 10 years later. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and uh, as you probably have heard, countless uh, American law students at the ages of 24 to 27 or so sometimes are thrust into the Socratic method and they're asking these questions of, well, oh, but is this the right decision? Did the Supreme Court get it right? Absolutely. <laughs> and you're supposed to answer it's that scary at 24. <laughs> and you're looking for certainty. So, but it's a, it was a great, it was a great um, opportunity to be thrown off the deep end um, and, and to learn. Yeah. Which is what I did. Sure. No. And that, that, that's fantastic. And so, um, what, what's interesting about that, Sophie, is that, you know, some of the other guests that we've had on the show, you know, they, they grew up in legal families or with, you know, grew up around lawyers and all that sort of background into international arbitration. And it sounds like you found your way here um, being the, the first of your family to go to law, um, go to law school, become a lawyer. 
what was that path like going from uh, one now finding out that you want to be a lawyer to international arbitration? So we're talking about a time where arbitration was certainly not taught at university and even largely, if not completely at the time, not even a field of practice in its own right. Um, you had litigators that did the odd arbitration, uh, but you certainly did not have what you have today. Um, and this was a field that mushroomed after I left law school. Not very long after, but a few years after. Um, and as often in the law, uh, it is the field that finds you as opposed to, it's, I, I find it very rare. It happens, you know, as you say, when you come from a legal family and you have a better sense of what it is that you like and don't like about the law, that you go after a career in a specific, it happens. It was not me. Uh, I was very much, uh, I knew I, I, I wanted to be a litigator. Uh, and I was trained as one, um, and I, I certainly qualified in Montreal as in insurance litigation. That's what I used to do. I used to represent um, uh, the insurers uh, of ski resorts um, in oh. personal injury cases. So I was paid to ski, essentially, which was pretty much, uh, were it not for the very severe nature of these cases, um, very emotional nature as well, it was pretty much a dream job for me to be paid to ski. Um, but that's that's how I started. I was a, I was a disputes lawyer, um, and after a few years in Montreal uh, working in that in that field, I um, did a master's degree at King's College London, and that's where I was exposed to first of all a more international practice, a more cross-border practice, and and international arbitration that we had uh, some lectures about it. And that's how I found out that it existed. I found it interesting, obviously, coming from a state court litigation background. Um, and then after that master's degree um, ended, I as really on the lark, because I was going back to my job in Montreal, I sent out CVs and uh, I was hired by Norton Rose, who had received their first ICC arbitration, international arbitration, in a commercial sort of thing. And they were looking for someone who had um, both civil law and common law background because this was a, a Russian law in, um, was governing. And they wanted someone who could understand Russian and speak it, and that was me. And that's why I, and that, and that's how I fell into it. I, I literally, um, you know, arrived there, took on this case. Uh, and once you start doing them, of course, within the firm, others follow because I have you know, amassed some knowledge. And that's where I saw what I was telling you. I saw essentially this field of practice develop into it, you know, come into its own, develop into its own field of practice as opposed to being a sort of adjunct of, um, of litigation. And that's how it happened. No, that, that's, that's really interesting. And what I, I think is uh, really telling is a common thing that we've had throughout uh, the episodes of the show are these language skills. And it sounds like that was a uh, sort of a key uh, for you. Um, and it, it was Russian. Well, what languages do you speak, Sophie? Um, I, I speak, uh, uh, well, French is my, my first language. I speak a little bit of English, um, Russian <laughs> and, and Spanish. Yes. My Russian, my spoken Russian is extremely rusty now. I would not venture there without a serious refresher, but I can read it. I can understand it. Yeah. Sure. Well, well, certainly better than mine. Uh, <laughs> uh, we will. Uh...
we'll, we'll leave that there, but that, that's really interesting. Um, and so now, you know, fast forward, you know, that some lawyering there in between those two points, you are now Madam Arbitrator. You are an arbitrator now, is that right? Yes, full-time. Full-time. And, and, and how, did that, how did that transition sort of happen? Was it uh, sort of just the natural next step after working international as, a, as counsel, or what, what, what took you there? Now that I, I, I to this day I, I wonder. I think I, it was destiny. Um, I never saw myself, unlike a lot of my colleagues who you know juggle both um, arbitrator and counsel roles. Um, I always saw myself first and foremost, first of all, as a practitioner, very much a practitioner, you know, person, uh, and, and as an advocate. And I never saw myself as an arbitrator ever. Um, and then I, after um, at, at my last firm, which was at, uh, which is now Denton's, which was Denton Walsa at the time, um, after seven years there, uh, I, and I, at the time I was leading the uh, international arbitration practice, and I started getting requests for appointment, and I, I just every time I was like me, um, and then. <laughs> Uh, after a while, um, I realized very quickly how difficult it is to do this uh, in the law firm environment. It just is not made made for that sort of role. Um, and so the idea became um, more tangible in my head that perhaps this was a challenge that I would like to take on. And um, I made inquiries um, to find out whether um, some barristers' chambers would be interested in. Um, Taking me as a as an associate member, as a what, what they call door tenants, not full members of chambers, but as an, an independent uh, uh, practitioner. And uh, three Berlin buildings uh, were very interested in developing that side of their practice, and so that's how it happened. It was really things. The one thing that I did do before jumping, because this was um, I was fairly early in my career to make that that transition. And I asked one of my clients um, at the time, look, I, I said, you know, I'm thinking of doing this. Um, and they said to me, and I said to them, no, no I, I'm not going to do it if you guys wouldn't appoint me. This is, this is pointless. I, I have to find out if you only appoint um, senior, you know, seasoned male arbitrators. And they mm -hmm. said, um, actually, um, we think there's a space in this market for people who are maybe less established, less busy, hungrier, uh, willing to read the documents in detail. Um, my practice at the time was uh, energy-based and uh, oil and gas construction infrastructure, so quite technical. And they said, you know, if, if you are coming into this market with this sort of attitude, we think there's a, it would be a great complement to what is already there. And I thought, wow, I hadn't seen it like that, but it's worth a shot. Um, and so that's what I did. And uh, and I, I I gave myself a few years uh, thinking, you know, if that doesn't work, then I'm going to have to um to to think things over. But uh, but it did. So that's how it happened. Wow. No, that, that that's quite a journey. And I I think. Uh... Uh, a lot of folks that want to break into the arbitration rule now wish that, you know, suddenly an appointment would appear. <laughs> uh, but yes. that, that's a great story. Um, and keeping on that note, Sophie, um, you know, the, the elephant in the room, so to speak, is most of 2020 has been dominated by the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak worldwide and its impact on every industry. 
um, as it goes to international dispute resolution, one of the new norms are virtual hearings. And, and one of the writings that, that we've observed um, in preparing for this episode was that you've written quite a bit about that, the virtual uh, aspect of those hearings and the accompanying physical and mental challenges. In your opinion, how can we move towards having healthier virtual hearings um, and not taking such a toll on the practitioners, councils, users, et cetera? Um, I'm not obviously um, a scientist or a, um, a wellness professional, so I'm really speaking solely from my very anecdotal experience. Uh, however, um, there is, um, when I wrote that piece in the Clure, on the Clure Operation blog a few, a few weeks back, um, I did the research, um, the science behind the unwellness uh, that we all experienced at first of having our world reduced to a small screen and having several people, I mean, as we speak, you and I now, it's quite comfortable because I look at one person. But when in a hearing, when you have 10, you know, 30 people, um, all with their own background, all with their own lighting, all with their own, you know, distance from the screen, uh, <laughs> the mind is very unsettled by that. Uh, and so there are protocols, obviously, that you can follow. You can ask people who are not indispensable to the hearing to sort of um, put their cameras off, uh, put their sound off. But for yourself as well, I think there's a real um, alertness or awareness to the fact that this screen time is not good for you uh, if it is sustained for any length of time. What that requires is a rethink of the length of the hearing day, first of all, especially if you're dealing with time zones, and also um, the um, number of breaks that you take, they are more frequent. And, during the, and you should take those breaks seriously. You should walk away from the screen, literally not, you know, um, you know, right in front of it. Or you should, if you can, um, physically walk around or take a breath of fresh air. Or And Zoom itself on its uh, blog tells us uh, that for every 50 minutes of screen time, there should be a 10-minute break, which obviously for hearings doesn't work well. But as um, arbitrator and often as chair, I uh, I tell the parties from the outset that there will be more frequent breaks and they should get, we're not going to aim for more than 75 minutes or tops, tops 90 minutes at a time and then we'll have a 20 minute break. And I find that not only for me, but the transcription, for example, or people who are translators, um, the, to have sustained, um, concentration for that amount of time is exhausting as it is, so you need to pace yourself. Now, I don't know, I mean, I think I think virtual hearings are here to stay, uh, if only for money reasons, because they are um, so much cheaper. Um, mixed hearings maybe will be the norm, where you have uh, one team all in one place and another team all in another place in the tribunal somewhere else, perhaps, so that there's less traveling around. And so that will make it a little bit easier. But I think uh, procedurally, there should be some adjustments. Um, due process and the idea of having your day in court should be adjusted to the fact that this is taking place via screen. Um, advocates 
tell me and I believe them that their whole style of presentation has had to adapt. They have to be a lot simpler. They have to speak slower, uh, more slowly. Um, they have to hammer the same ideas again and again, just because that screen somehow is an obstacle a little bit too. And also the whole sort of body language or um, the leaning in to make your point, you know, is, is, is completely um, distorted. Now, that said, uh, I wonder, and I have that I haven't seen any evidence of um, scientifically, but I wonder if that wouldn't work in favor. You know, when you are an orator or an advocate, if you are like someone like you, you know, big imposing person standing up, people look at you, you know, you're striking who you are. If you are someone like me who's a slighter and you sort of disappear in the background as an advocate. And I wonder if the screen doesn't reestablish that balance a little bit um, where, you know, you don't need to stand up and be imposing um, to make your point. Um, so I don't know. No, I, I think that's a fantastic point, Sophie. And I think even if we're not talking pure, just like the physical sizes of the, the persons uh, perhaps being interrogated or talking, one reputation that we as American lawyers sometimes have, if you're a litigator, is the, the thing that you see on TV, the classic cross-examination where, you know, you slowly are, are approaching the witness and you're standing between them and the jury and you say, you can't handle the truth sort of moment. Um, that sort of is muted uh, in, in the screen environment. I mean, there's not really that opportunity. Completely. And I wonder, I think the, the whole sort of badgering the witness is, is also becomes a little bit pointless uh, on screen as well. Uh, you know, it, it, so I think there might be silver linings. We might look and see, maybe we'll have a more civilized um, cross-examination type of style uh, emer emerging from this, or even advocacy style might be less formal, a little bit more conversational, uh, but definitely we'll see, we'll see changes, I'm sure of it, uh, in the fullness of time. Well, that, and, and speaking of changes, Sophie, you know, you, you kind of touched on it a little bit. The virtual hearings are here to stay. You know, I, I wonder, you know, just, you know, earlier this week, um, the, the VSMOOT organizers, you know, even came out and said that uh, the MOOT for next year will continue to be online. I, I wonder what that new balance will be between, you know, yes, the expense is lesser, but how many users of, our, um, of commercial arbitration or mediation are wanting to still have people in the same room as the arbitrators, or the mediators, or their witnesses, um, and and I and I guess the question I might have for you is that um, do, do you think that at some point maybe we just don't have in-person hearings anymore? Is that a possibility? You see? I mean, I think uh, arbitration. Um, the beauty of one of the strong points of arbitration is party autonomy. And if the parties want it, they can get it, um, provided they can obviously pay for it. Um, I, what I worry about, um, I, I find that virtual hearings um, are not, personally, I quite like the collegiality of um, being physically in person with colleagues and with counsel. Um, however, um, I understand that, you know, that's an expensive, luxurious process sometimes. What I worry about is um, access to the bandwidth and the technology that allow that would allow um, 
litigants and people, users of arbitration in those countries where that access is not as taken for granted as it is in uh, Western countries. I worry about all the capacity building that I do in countries where not everyone can afford a tablet. Um, these are the people uh, who benefit the most from in-person interaction with the um, trainers or arbitrators or professionals. And certainly being the giver of that training, I benefit immensely from that interaction in person. That's what I don't like about uh, the whole virtual thing. It is, um, it, it, it's not an option that's available to everyone and it's not an option that's available sometimes to those who need it the most. So I, I don't have a solution uh, at the moment, certainly with uh, all the travel restrictions, but I, I, I worry about that. Well, sure. I, I think that's a very astute point, Sophie, the, this access to, uh, to justice and to the same platforms that, you know, arguably a bigger or wealthier party you might have that may not be available to someone that's legitimately just seeking their rights. Absolutely. And, you know, referencing it briefly, but kind of pivoting just a bit, as we talk about technology and how we further kind of take this step into integrating the use of technology into dispute resolution and um, these arbitration mediation mechanisms, um, one thing that I think if anyone, you know, does and even the most the rudimentary research into you, Sophie, that you've written a lot about has been has been blockchain technology and its sort of uh, usage in arbitration. Now, one thing that has frustrated me, Sophie, in, in reading on this topic has been whenever people talk about or when you go to conferences and they talk about how can blockchain technology be used in arbitration, they often will say, ah, well, it can be a way to track awards or it can be a, a really secure list. And, and invariably someone that took, you know, coding 101 in college will say, I mean, that, the cloud already does that. You know, we don't need blockchain to do that. So bring it back around to the question I have for you, Sophie. Um, you've completed the Oxford Blockchain Strategy Program and written extensively on the use of blockchain in international arbitration. In your opinion, how will blockchain technology impact dispute resolution processing in the coming years? Um, I will try very hard not to uh, carry on talking about this topic, which has been a pet topic of mine for longer than, than I have to, uh, for your sake and for mine. But to, in answer to your question, um, the wholesale adoption of blockchain in the dispute resolution space uh, is not for immediately, it is for uh, some time in the future. However, uh, I, I can see uh, a short-term impact in the field of e-commerce, low-value disputes, high volume between people who don't know or trust each other, may have never met each other, maybe never will meet again. Um, there you have an immediacy um, of decision-making and a, an immutability of result um, and an automatization that can be very attractive and that can put a hole between what um, state courts and arbitration tribunals offer, uh, which is not accessible to someone who's got a you know, $500 dispute uh, over the supply of widgets uh, online. So between that that 
high end, uh, which will remain. And then the very low end dispute, or not low end, but the more sort of run of the mill dispute that in my mind are going to be ripe for uh, AI decision making uh, in the future. So I think uh, blockchain decision making by humans, by human jurors, sits a little bit in the middle of that. That's where I, I can see uh, the, the first use case for it. Definitely. Now, none of this is going to happen, in my view, uh, without um, an element of governance. That's what's missing at the moment. There is no such thing. There's a lot of talk about it and how to do it and about, about how to sort of regulate the space, provide some checks and balances, especially if you're talking about consumers having access to that decision making. All of this is extremely important. And we also have to uh, find a way to make those decisions interact with the off-chain world, the real world. Uh, as long as everything remains within the ecosystem, it, you know, it can work. But right now, not everyone's got crypto, not everyone wants crypto, not everyone you know, can interact with blockchain, not everyone has a web tree browser. Uh, all of these questions need to be, it's a little bit like the internet when, when it started. You know, now now everybody's grandmother goes on the internet, but uh, at the beginning that was not the case. So uh, yes, well, sure. a very short answer to your question is e-commerce low value disputes. Okay, and I want to pick right up there and say uh, on the last point that you were kind of getting at, um, when it comes to regulation, what, what what do you think is the reason for the reluctance? Is it that is that people need to understand the technology better, and then the regulation will come? or there needs to be more demand from, from a user's perspective, or what, what do you think? I, think? I think you're right on both, on both points. I think it's, uh, it's a matter of uh, familiarity with it. It's a matter of um, mainstream users, uh, more commercially mainstream users um, adopting it. Um, and there, I think there's a, a degree of uh, reluctance of the general public vis-a-vis um, -vis anything to do with cryptocurrency because of its association, um, regrettably, its association with borderline illegal uh, and frankly some illegal transactions, whereas it's not obviously all of that. But I think, I think all of this, that its image is a, is a little bit tainted by that. Uh, so, but I don't think there's um, a reluctance to govern it. It's just a matter of where do we start? Um, uh, <laughs> you know, by, what, by what angle? Um, yeah. It's, it's coming. No, that, yeah, and, and another thing that's coming, and this is the one I, I, I chuckle when I hear folks sometimes talk about this one too, but it's, um, and it's, I guess, somewhat parallel or adjacent, is artificial intelligence, machine learning. Um, how do those topics sort of interplay with um, the dispute resolution process? Um, oftentimes we hear it in the context of, ah, the robots are coming for your jobs and everyone will have a cyber lawyer. Um, and maybe that's you know at least five or ten or twenty-five years away. But you know what? What do you think? I mean, how soon is AI going to have an impact, or maybe is it already having an impact from your perspective? It it is uh, already having an impact. It is being used, for example, by quantum experts were that testifying before me. Uh, it's used uh, by litigation funders and arbitration funders in assessing the likelihood of success. Uh, algorithms are, are used for that. So there's no question that it's being used right now. Um, I'm co-chairing uh, an ICC working group on allegations of corruption in arbitration. 
And we are going to explore uh, whether um, algorithms could help in identifying red flags, for example, for, or indicia of corruption. So my stance on this has always been um, that um, the robots uh, are made and coded by humans, and it is up to humans to decide to what degree and at what point they stop being useful. Uh, there is no question that they do certain limited things much, much better than humans, things that involve voluminous data, for example, uh, in a much more accurate and fast and effective way and cheaper way uh, eventually than humans. But the idea is to partner up with them. I think the process can be optimized if we partner up with the robots to do what the humans do best and to let them do what they do best. But that requires a certain discipline and an understanding of what how they do what they do so that's where um that's that that's yeah that's where i think ai can can be really useful the robots are coming for your job i mean there's no question that they are coming for uh young lawyers jobs traditionally um and uh, but that also means that uh, young lawyers get to be trained differently and perhaps in a much more intellectually interesting way not being stuck for hours on end refining documents. Does that mean that we're entering a situation where young lawyers and maybe the next generations of lawyers to come need to be taking coding classes? I mean, you know, some of the, you know, I think every young lawyer, you know, the new lawyer to a firm is now having this realization of where they're having to sort of be the briefer in the firm about how some of this technology works. And I could see that in the next few years, maybe you just need to learn how to code or something. What do you think? I mean, certainly to have an understanding of how coding works uh, without, you know, necessarily ha having to take coding lessons uh, is, a, is, is going to be an asset. Uh, and, and to understand the mindset of the computer scientists and the coders and how they reduce and code concepts that for lawyers uh, are not reducible in mathematical formulae, just like fairness like due process, like equality of arms, all of these things. For this to happen, I think for the young lawyers having, um, a, I would say a, at least a passing interest on uh, technological development so that they can um, assess, you know, where do they fit alongside that? Um, and those who are really interested, I think uh, already some firms are, uh, have, um, brought in-house some legal tech uh, experts uh, to help them in, in advising clients and, and to have a secondment uh, as part of that team for a young lawyer, I think would be a fantastic opportunity. Uh, I have da uh, daughters who are con contemplating a, a legal career at the moment, and I would certainly, I mean, they, they are fed up with hearing me talk about blockchain, but I would certainly uh, encourage them to, um, to do exactly that, just because, um, we are no as lawyers we're no longer interacting only with other lawyers we're interacting with coders we're interacting with scientists when and 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 whether we like it or not their work is going to influence ours so it's a good thing to have a dialogue well sure and then i mean and that's not even approaching the the pure numbers of you know at what point do users or, or clients start to say you know i appreciate that you need to train your young lawyers or that you need to have you know this amount of editing or whatever, as many hours build, but frankly, it takes a fraction of that time and how that's gonna change the business of law itself. 
completely and and that's you cannot argue with that just like you you cannot argue with the death of the um of the hourly rate <laughs> <laughs> the slow death you know it's going down slowly you know it's not gone yet slowly, yes, slowly, um, yes. Um, Okay, no, that, that that's all interesting, and you know, we could easily probably fill uh, multiple episodes of the show talking about all, all of those types of things. So, so thanks for your thoughts there. Um, one thing that I did want to uh, mention to you, Sophia, get your thoughts on, are um, you have established the Nappert Prize in International Arbitration, um, and it's a brilliant opportunity for for young scholars and practitioners. Can you describe one, I guess, you know, for the listeners, what what that prize is, and two, what was your motivation? And, um, and starting it and founding it? Um, so the prize is in its fourth edition this year. It's every two years. It is um, administered under the auspices of McGill University, my alma mater. And it, it is open to every um, student or young lawyer, uh, less than three year qualified uh, worldwide. Uh, it can you can make submissions in French, English, or Spanish on any topic of your choice in international arbitration, and um, it is um, going to be awarded. It is awarded classically around this time, actually, at the end of the summer, and there is a prize-giving ceremony in October. Um, that's usually the timing. There is a, a very prestigious jury uh, of practitioners and um, scholars in arbitration um, who um, judge the, the submissions. And um, it is, you, we usually draw three winners. Um, this year, because there's not going to be any traveling to the, um, the, the prize ceremony, we might draw more, uh, hopefully. Um, we shall see, I, I'm in discussion with Miguel about that. But there is an added, um, part of the prize and added monetary um, uh, award that, um, that is uh, tacked on top of the actual written submission. So the three best um, finalists, uh, the three best prizes uh, are asked, uh, were asked to come to McGill uh, in October to present their paper uh, verbally, orally uh, to, a, to a panel and the best oralist um, got uh, added um, award money, monetary award. Because uh, it was quite important to me that there should be this oral component. Uh, as uh, lawyers in arbitration, we are asked to make presentations all the time. Very complex topics, very demanding audience, and you're given 10 minutes. There's nothing that prepares you for that in law school. Uh, even, mooting is not the same thing. So debating is not the same thing. So, so I, it was quite important to me to give um, to give those participating in the prize the opportunity to to shine in that way as well, and and to know that this was the way in which they would have to sell their skills later. Now, every you mean the litigator the wanted an oral presentation? I'm so sorry. I said you mean the litigator wanted an oral presentation? Shocking. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Uh, I mean, uh, information about the prize can be found on the, on the McGill uh, University, the McGill Law School um, page. Um, yeah, that's what it is. And how it came about, goodness me, that was another sort of, came to me in a dream. Um, I wanted to, um, I wanted to give uh, younger colleagues a voice. This is a field where um, 
experience and seniority is very highly regarded, which is fantastic, but it also means that growing up in it, you sometimes feel like you are um, not really listened to for the longest time, even though you may have uh, very important things that you want to say. And I wanted to give young colleagues the opportunity to say them and also to network uh, amongst like-minded people from all over the world. And this was a way, the way that I could think of doing it. Also, um, McGill University uh, were um, very receptive to the idea of having the prize. It was something that they found uh, uplifting and uh, that they were willing to take on because administratively it is a tremendous amount of work, obviously, to make this um, to make this stand up and, and run, run smoothly every every two years. And so. Um, Essentially, it was a joint effort, and it allowed me as well to give back to my alma mater, which was um, something that mattered to me. So that's how it happened. No, that, that's a that's an inspiring story, um, and it's good on you for reaching back to pave the way um, for those coming after you. Um, that that's beautiful. That's a great story. Um, well, shifting focus just a little bit, Sophie. Um, one of the things that we, we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, but uh, I'd love to, to hear your further thoughts on them, are now looking back on your career, and this kind of ties into the, the, the topics with, uh, with your prize, what were some of the guiding influences or, or role models or, or, or forces that sort of guided you to, to where you are today? Um, I'd be curious to hear some of your thoughts from that perspective. It's a very difficult question for me to answer because I, um, I although I've, I've obviously come across uh, colleagues um, more senior than me, younger than me, who have been you know, completely inspiring in the, in the way that they, um, they, you know, went about their career and their life. I find the idea of, um, of a role model or a mentor uh, um, something that uh, is fraught with difficulty. I, I've always resisted it. Um, I Now uh, the time uh, where I am in my career, I'm often uh, asked to mentor younger colleagues. And I um, obviously enjoy very much that uh, interaction, but I do try. I, I do try not to be a mentor in the sense of um, taking someone under my wing, because um, I've always. Um, I always think that um, that younger person or a less experienced colleague is able to stand on their own two feet. It, I'm, it's more about an empowerment thing for me. Um, it's quite important for me to that person to feel empowered, to feel that they can do it themselves rather than say, you know, I'm being guided by Sophie Nappi. Um, they have their own uh, path and journey to follow, and uh, it's a matter of finding it. And in order to find it, I think certainly quite happy to share thoughts, but that I, I have a problem with, um, with the sort of hierarchy of mentorship as, as understood in the when I was growing up in this field. Um, so the answer to your question is I don't really have uh, a role model or a mentor um, in um, my colleagues or, or forebears in this, no one that's alive anyway. Um, 
I, I would say that I'm more inspired by, you know, figures of literature or philosophy or that. Um, so I'm sorry. I'm, I, I can tell that's a little bit of a letdown, but uh, there we go. <laughs> that's what it is. No, no, it, it's not. You know, that, 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 that philosophy in itself actually uh, resonates with me because when I was beginning in this field, uh, I actually reached out to, um, you know, more senior practitioners said, you know, hey, would you be my mentor? And, you know, and I, she didn't say anything for a couple of days and then responded. I saw that she looked at my LinkedIn and then she wrote, you know, a kind of one paragraph sort of answer. And it was, hi, you know, thanks for reaching out. You know, you have all of the skills that are necessary to exceed in this field. There's nothing really further I could tell you at this moment, um, you know, go forth and be great. And I remember at that moment, I was kind of like, wow, well, I, I felt a little offended at first. And I've continued to have a relationship with this person. And it's never like they've been, ah, I am now your mentor. But they have certainly, you know, given some nuggets of wisdom from time to time and become uh, someone that I, I consider a colleague and, uh, and uh, you know, familiar at this point. So I, I certainly understand that. And I think that, yeah, allowing people to identify their own brand or personality in the field is, is important. I think that sometimes can be lost if you just bury yourself in your mentor and you just become exactly like them. Yes, uh, or or um, or it may be that um, you find the mentorship relationship very fruitful, and that somehow um, makes it very difficult to wean yourself from it. I've seen that as well. I have seen uh, people essentially being described as being, you know, Mr. Great Arbitrator's um, assistant, and and that mm. obviously. I mean, it works for a time, but it's it, it's also it's a double-edged sword, and so that's what I that's what I mean. I I, I don't obviously I, I I'm always honored to be asked uh, for mentorship. I'm always uh, privileged to uh, be able to exchange views, but I certainly do not see myself as a sort of top-down giver of advice uh, of anything. I can only speak about my own uh, journey. Well, and I can tell you, you know, the, the kind of finishing off this point. I think, in my experience and from what I've seen. The most impactful mentors in my life and the ones that I've observed are the ones that don't say, hey, I'm your mentor. It's the ones that, you know, kind of just live. And if you learn something from them, great. But they don't there doesn't need to be a title on it. You know, I think that uh, or a formalistic Precisely. process I'll put it that way. Um, Absolutely. Cool. Well, well, well said and well thought that, that I think that um, that that'll be an interesting nugget for the listeners. Um, one question <laughs> I have for you, Sophie, and it's a and it's a pivot from that uh, once again. Uh, what are you reading right now? You mentioned, you know, some philosophers, the things that you might uh, follow oh, from time. Goodness. What are you reading? That's, a, that's another hard question. You only, you only, the only, the thing I like about yeah, bury the hard question late. None of them are easy. <laughs> okay, so that's a hard question because reading for pleasure is really hard for me uh, because yes. I read so much for as we do. I mean, lawyers generally, I think I don't think I'm alone in that, but. I read, you know, 200 page memorials on a, almost a daily basis. And so you develop a, a way of reading, um, you know, fairly succinctly. That means that getting lost in a novel is something that I find really hard to do. So that um, means that I have to um, either read something really mindless, <laughs> which I'm not going to admit to here. <laughs> fair enough, happened, fair enough. Though. Um, or uh, or reading for um, intellectual stuff that really fires me up. So 
right now, uh, going back to the topic of fairness in uh, blockchain arbitration, um, I, I was, um, you know, giving some thought to that for a publication that I was doing, um, and that I thought to myself, maybe I should go back and read, you know, Plato, um, The Republic. And so I've been doing some of that. Um, and and but that that's that's not that's not a fair answer to your question because it's it's for pleasure but it's not for escape you know for pure escape escapism uh, I will read um, I read a lot in my native language a lot of French literature which um, and contemporary authors as well which I I just enjoy because it's a change um, I read. Um, um, the Swedish crime novels. <laughs> okay, I, fair, fair. The New York books. That's pretty. Uh, that's pretty much me. <laughs> no, and, and speaking of uh, writing in your in your native language, um, I've been reading a lot of uh, James Baldwin recently, the the famous civil rights activist who lived yes. in uh, France for some years. So, um, just this beautiful uh, poetry and and sort of thinking uh, that's still relevant today. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, still alive. Um, I've been reading uh, during the pandemic when it started. Um, one of my favorite authors in in French is um, Antoine de Saint Exupéry, who wrote the Little the Little Prince and uh, who wrote a fantastic novel called Wind, Sand, and Stars, which is uh, about um, being adventurous. Um, you know crossing into from from france into the andes in argentina in a tiny little plane that broke down all the time it's about survival um and it's about humanity uh and i just thought i needed to go back to that source uh given what we're going through now no that that that's again that's very uh, poetic and it kind of re it resonates again because uh, one of my favorite books is the alchemist by paulo coelho um oh, goodness, with, oh, yeah and with me being in a Portuguese-speaking country, that just seems like like it fits. It's the thing one would do. Absolutely, <laughs> are aligned again. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, okay. Well, okay. Only one more hard question. Um, what What kind of music do you like? What kind of music, or do you have any favorite artists? I um, I would do anything for jazz. Uh, I'm a great, great jazz lover. Um, this, this, the one thing that I, especially in places like New York City, for example, or even London is my home city, so you hardly go out in it, but London is a great jazz capital as well. I'm um, a huge fan of someone called Abishai Cohen, um, okay. who has a very distinctive brand of jazz, which is very musical, which I love. Um, he is a bass player, bass player, mm -hmm. um, and he's got his own group. Uh, do you know him? Yes. Yeah. 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 No. Uh, yes. I, I. I'm a jazz fan as well. So yes, that name came right up. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um. Maybe when this is all over, we're gonna have to get together and um uh, and go to a jazz gig. That would be good. Um, hey, I'm also. Wouldn't that be great? Oh my God! It it feels incredible to think that it's you know it it's not so long ago that this happened. Uh, but let's do that. Let's make a let's, let's make a plan for that. Um, the other thing that I listen to because um, I am a violinist by training. I, I played the violin for many many years, and um, and so the classical music um, 
particularly the Baroque period, but not only. Classical music is something that um, is, is an important part of my life. Right now I'm listening to Shostakovich, the Preludes. Uh, I also listen to uh, Eric Satie. I'm a great, great fan of Yo-Yo Ma. Uh, anything cellist I just speaks to me very much. Um, so that's, yeah, that's, that's me musically. No, that's great. I was going to ask you if you played any instruments. Um, again, we are, are paralleling here because I, by trade, am a, was a clarinetist. I played clarinet uh, pretty competitively for about 10 oh, years. Wow. Oh, um, fantastic. Oh, wow. And did you, and so um, you do you still play? I, I have dabbled. I, I, I played some earlier this year, in fact, for the first time in some years. Uh, but it's, it's been a while since I've played properly. And you might know that a lot of clarinet parts, especially in a, songs or certain arrangements that call for violin, will be uh, you know, touched up to be for clarinet. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, because you have the melody, don't you? And uh, absolutely, no, definitely. Yeah, see, see, we right here, we right here, we got it. Um, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, one, one question that I like to ask guests, you know, especially as we start to wind down here, Sophie, is um, yeah. let's say, if you were approached by a current student or a recent graduate, or maybe just someone that's looking to break into the field, um, and they asked you, you know, where, where, where should they start? What sort of advice would you give them to, to for a career in international dispute resolution? Um, the first thing I would say is um, do not discount the time factor. Uh, millennials are a very impatient bunch. Uh, and rightly so, because who wants to wait, you know, 15 years before making a difference? But there is a time factor in this field because it's a field, it's a community, and the community is about people, and it's about trust. And you have to become, um, to make friends, and to be known um, for who you are, how you think, uh, how you practice, and that is, there's no shortcut for that. Um, it's, and get involved uh, right away. Um, right now, there are so many uh, younger, like below 40 or whatever, um, networking groups. Um, I would say go out there, you know, get involved uh, in those groups, participate, volunteer for stuff. Try to um, write about some stuff that you enjoy. Um, it doesn't have to be a very learned article. It can be a case comment. It can, you know, right now, again, we're no longer in those days where you had to go, everything was via peer-reviewed journals that was forever. Nowadays, you can have a blog. You can go to Clure arbitration blog. They are very, very open to publishing um, snippets from someone who's a younger person but who has something interesting to say. Uh, and I would say mostly have fun. You know, enjoy it. It's a, it's a, it's a great, uh, it's a intellectually rewarding field of practice, and um, yeah, it's that's what I would say. No, I, I think that's all great advice. Um, that's you know, making sure that you understand that it's a journey, not a sprint, um, is is key Absolutely. to develop your brand. Absolutely, and also, I mean, the thing that I always tell students in university um, environments is, uh, you know. Arbitration does not exist as a field of practice. So right now, to set your sights on arbitration and arbitration only may be a mistake. It could be arbitration end now. So keep your eyes open, look around. Um, it's important to have silo vision to achieve your goals, but at the same time, you shouldn't blinker yourself. I don't know how you do the both, but that's the idea. 
<laughs> no, no, I, I think that's great. I think that's great. And I think that's fair. Um, okay, let's see. You know, I said that, that, that the music question was a hard one, but I've got one more hard question for you, Sophie. Um, no, let's, no, let's, no. I know this is the gotcha moment. This is the gotcha moment. Um, <laughs> let's say that it's 5 p.m. on a Friday and you are somehow completely free for the weekend. You don't have any outstanding arbitration work that you need to do. It's not COVID anymore. You've got a wand that that no longer exists. How would you spend your weekend? That's an easy question. Okay. Um, Pre-COVID, I would have said almost certainly travel somewhere. It doesn't have to be far. And it would probably involve a lake. Um, otherwise, um, a yoga retreat. A yoga retreat for the weekend. I'm very much into rocket yoga. Um, I really enjoy it. It's a fantastic um, journey. That no, that's a journey. Uh, it's one of the most challenging things uh, that I've ever taken up, um, and that's what I yeah, that's what I would do. We have now reached the the end of the show um, and the, near the end of the t our time together. Before we get out of here, do you have any shout outs that you'd like to give? Absolutely. I wanted to shout out to uh, Federico Ast, who is the CEO of Pleros, uh, a blockchain uh, dispute resolution application. And I believe uh, we're going to meet very shortly, Chris, with Federico and me um, on another one of your episodes. Well, that's true. If you were a good listener and you stayed all the way to this part of the episode, you now have a tip as to what episode following this one will be so yes we will be having a sit-down conversation next with federico um sophie will be back and we'll be talking about claros and that will be actually next week um and so so shout out to you federico we'll tag you in the comments and uh with that i think that we are are, are done for the day sophie thank you so much for coming by thank you very much for having me great and sophie do you want to go ahead and sign us off too I'm Sophie Nappert, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you so much, and we will see y'all next time. So, that was my conversation with Sophie Nappert. With all that tech talk, I feel like I just walked off the set of Star Trek. I hope you learned as much as I did in having that conversation. And if you enjoyed hearing from Sophie, Check out her website and other writings. In fact, as mentioned at the top of the show, she'll be back next week for an additional episode with Claro's founder, Federico Ast, to talk about that project. What's Claro's, you ask? You'll have to tune in next week to find out. <laughs> Again, to remind you, if you haven't already, check out yesterday's episode of Disputes Digest. It should show up in your podcast feed. And as always, like and review the show. It really helps us get the word out and new listeners discover the show. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by MoBeta Solutions. Show music is done by Joshua and Jaden Campbell, and our research assistants are Romit Kohli and Amar Singh. That's it for this week. I'm Chris Campbell, and there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal. <laughs>